0: Welcome to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. Join us every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio for a look at the life, deeds, and words of Yeshua Messiah and His followers from the Torah-centric Hebraic perspective they were originally lived and written in. Today's program is on Luke chapter 23, verse 26 through verse 56. Please get out your Bible and follow along. What did Messiah mean when he mentioned the green tree and the dry? When Messiah said, forgive them, for they know not what they do, who was he talking about? Is there extra-biblical historical evidence of the signs that occurred on the day of Messiah's death? And what is the appropriate response to the life and death of Yeshua Messiah? Stay tuned throughout today's program for Eliyahu and David's insight on these questions and more in Luke chapter 23, verse 26 through verse 56. And now, here's today's scripture portion. Luke chapter 23, verse 26 through verse 56. When they led Messiah away, they grabbed one Simon of Cyrene coming from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it after Yeshua. A great multitude of the people followed him, including women who also mourned and lamented him. But Yeshua, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to tell the mountains, Fall on us, and tell the hills, cover us, For if they do these things in the green tree, what will be done in the dry? There were also others, two criminals, led with him to be put to death. When they came to the place that is called the Skull, they crucified him there with the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Yeshua said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Dividing his garments among them, they cast lots. The people stood watching. The rulers with them also scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Messiah of Elohim, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was also written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged insulted him, saying, If you are the Messiah, save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Don't you even fear Elohim, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He said to Yeshua, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Yeshua said to him, Assuredly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Yeshua, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what was done, he glorified Elohim, saying, Certainly. This was a righteous man. All the multitudes that came together to see this, when they saw the things that were done, returned home beating their breasts. All his acquaintances and the women who followed with him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Behold, a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their counsel and deed, from Arimathea, a city of the Judeans, who was also waiting for the kingdom of Elohim. This man went to Pilate and asked for Yeshua's body. He took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb that was cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of the preparation and the Sabbath was drawing near. The women who had come with him out of Galilee followed after and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. They returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. And now, here's Eliyahu's insight on that portion.
1: Stand at the crossroads and look Ask for the ancient-
2: What can you say about the death of Yeshua Messiah? Whatever we can say to you, whatever we can tell you, it cannot match the actual
3: deed. Words fail us to describe the importance of this central act of all
2: time. But we shall do our best. We will look into the word. We will see... What eyewitnesses are telling us about the death of Yeshua that
3: has so much impact on all of our lives. It is finished. So much was finished when Yeshua died on the tree. And it's truly such a profound
2: thing. I'm going to go through some of these things kind of fast, just picking out certain points. Yeshua had a word for these daughters of Jerusalem when they were mourning over Yeshua. And he told them, daughters of Jerusalem, weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they'll begin to tell the mountains fall on us and tell the hills cover us. For if they do these things in the green tree, what will be done in the dry? Certainly an amazing moment. What does this mean? What if if they do these things in the green tree, what will be done in the dry? Well, as I was looking into this, I felt that the Spirit reminded me of Luke chapter 3 because here we have the beginning of the good
3: news where Yohanan, John the Immerser, began his ministry. And
2: what he said to the people was, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Don't begin to say among yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I tell you that Elohim is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Even now the axe also lies at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that doesn't bring forth good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now I think this is interesting. You know, it was reminding me, as I was reading it right now, that there was a remnant there. and. That's what this ministry was all about with Yohanan. He was calling all the people, right? He was calling them all to repentance. But only some repented. He says the axe lies at the root of the trees. So he was really already proclaiming this message in the context of trees, people being trees. And he says, every tree that doesn't bring forth good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So we would call these a dry tree. They're not producing any fruit. The ones that are thrown in the fire. But he doesn't mention the others. Obviously, they're not thrown in the fire. This is the beginning of this separation work. So a green tree speaks
3: of life and There was still
2: life in Jerusalem, spiritual life. That's what Yeshua was talking about, was Jerusalem, right? Daughters of Jerusalem. He's talking about Jerusalem. There was life still there. It was a green tree. But the life was in the remnant,
3: not in everybody. And even the remnant didn't step up, did they, on that day?
2: A lot of them, in fact, were in hiding. This is what happened. Because events can be so overwhelming that even the good people can't handle it. What happened with Yeshua, just observing it, was so difficult for the remnant to bear, even they couldn't handle it. He could handle it, and he's the one on the cross.
3: It's pretty amazing. But what he's saying is, We still have life in Jerusalem, spiritual life. On that day, it's going to be a dry tree. In other words, the remnant are going to be removed. There'll be no more life, no more spiritual life. What's going to happen then? And that's exactly what happened, isn't it? It's interesting to me
2: that. There was a period of 40 years in which this separation work was going on, from the time that
3: Yohanan started preaching until about the time of the siege. There was about 40 years. And during that 40 years of preaching, the remnant were identified when the time was right, they were removed. They believed Yeshua and they escaped. And then what Yeshua was saying
2: to those women is what happened. You know, I found this interesting too, that it seems so strange to be doing this and to get into this whole big message of doom. And yet, this is what I'm feeling to talk about right here, this whole message of doom. And I want to tell you something about this. You know, really, when we talk about the death of Yeshua on the cross, what we always talk about is grace and love and forgiveness and what he means to us as sinners saved by grace And all of that is true. But there is another side to this message. You see, all of those things we're talking about, the love, the forgiveness, the salvation, the grace, it's all for the people who believe in the death of Yeshua.
3: Do you understand? If you don't believe in it, When you should believe in it, what is left for you? Isn't the very judgment that fell upon him on the cross all that is left?
2: Do you understand what I'm saying? See, this is the other side of this. The fact that Yeshua has come and that he went to the cross, And he provided
3: the sacrifice for sin means that's done now. And everybody has to make a choice about that.
2: And that's what was happening there in Jerusalem. Everybody was going to have to make a choice. What does this mean? And for some, it was going to mean salvation.
3: The ones he's speaking of is the green tree. But for the dry, the axe was at the root of the tree and would be thrown into the fire. Here's
2: what Josephus wrote about what actually happened when the Roman soldiers finally came through after the siege and they breached the walls and they broke into the city. It says this. When they were come to the houses to plunder them, they found in them entire families of dead men and the upper rooms full of dead corpses, that is, of such as died by the famine they then stood in a horror at this sight and went out without touching anything. Have there ever been people
3: more seasoned to gore than Roman soldiers? They went into these homes and what they saw in there was so horrible to them they had to run out of the room.
2: But although they had this commiseration for such as were destroyed in that manner, yet had they not the same for those that were still alive, but they ran every one of them through whom they met and obstructed the very lanes with their dead bodies, piled up the dead bodies in the road,
3: and made the whole city run down with blood. I don't think
2: most of us can even imagine what this was like, what happened in Jerusalem. And he says why it happened. Jerusalem, nor did it on any other account so much deserve these sore misfortunes as by producing such a generation of men as were the occasions Of this, it's overthrow. This is what Josephus says. This is what other historians say. This is what Romans said about these people, that they were despicable people. And the reason they were is because all the good people had already left. The people that were left were despicable, wicked people who deserve
3: this to happen to them.
2: Let's be clear about that. God would not bring such a disaster upon these people unrighteously. Who is righteous, these people or God? I hear people defend these people sometimes. Don't do that, because if you do, you are condemning God who brought this destruction upon them. They deserved it. They did not look to the one who died for them and receive that gift of grace. And there was nothing left for them because they refused to do that except the very wrath that had fallen upon him.
3: That is just the facts. Albert Barnes spoke about this verse about the green tree
2: and also about the mountains falling on us and covering us. He said, Our Lord alludes evidently to the calamities that would come upon them by the Romans in the destruction of their city and temple. Yes, that's what we just saw. The passage may be applied, however, without impropriety and with great beauty and force to the punishment of the wicked in the future world. A green tree is not adapted
3: to burn. A dry one is. What happened in the first century? The life, the spiritual life, was taken away leaving a dry tree. What is about to happen in this world? This world, here in these last days, is
2: the remnant, the righteous remnant, is going to be taken out of all the nations of the world and brought to a place
3: of safety. And what are you left with? a dry tree. And history will repeat itself on a grand scale. And it is so interesting
2: that Yeshua said, the wicked will say to the mountains, fall on us until the hills cover us. To me, this isn't talking about what happened in Jerusalem. This is talking about the last days, because Revelation chapter 6, the book of Revelation, was written after the year 90. It was written after this destruction of Jerusalem happened, decades later. And it's pointing forward to the last days. And in Revelation chapter 6, we have the loosing of the seals, And you can believe this or not believe this, but the first five seals have been released already. The sixth seal is ahead of us, and the sixth seal
3: is when the people say this. What must happen before that? The remnant must be removed from the nations in the second exodus. It's pretty
2: amazing to me that as Yeshua is going to the cross, he is actually giving us a prophecy for our day, which then is elucidated on later in the book of Revelation, which is also from Yeshua Messiah. He himself says that in the beginning of the book of Revelation. He's carrying forward this theme. And what about what the people say? As they're saying this, they're talking about the wrath of the Lamb. What is the Lamb? Why do we use that term? The Lamb refers to our Messiah who gave his life on the cross. And it's talking about
3: wrath? When we talk about Yeshua on the cross, don't we always talk about forgiveness? Why in the book of Revelation are they afraid of the wrath of the Lamb? He is angry at what they did to him. He is. Would you be? His father is angry about it. Not at you, the ones who put faith in him, But the world who continues to spurn his gift, he's angry. Don't doubt it. Oh yes, but I know it goes on and it tells us
2: about his forgiveness. Two criminals were led with him to be put to death. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him there with the criminals. One on the right and the other on the left. Yeshua said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Dividing his garments among them, they cast lots. This is often interpreted as, you see that Jesus loves everybody. He just forgives everybody no matter what they've done or whatever they do. Well, That is true if they will repent and put their faith in him. But that's not who he's forgiving here. He's not just forgiving everybody. In the context, they came to the place. They crucified him there. He said, Father, forgive them. And then they cast lots over his garment. It's clearly talking about the actual soldiers who are killing him. And then he says,
3: forgive them because they don't know what they do.
2: Did these soldiers know what they were doing? How many other people had they crucified at that place? This was a regular ongoing occurrence.
3: He was just one more guy, one more poor soul that they were executing. That's all they knew. They weren't the chief priests that plotted the whole thing. They weren't Herod or Pilate who gave in to the political pressure. They were just a couple of ordinary Joes who
2: were doing their duty. Now, did they go beyond that? Yeah, but you know what? They probably, really, they probably insulted all of the people they killed. You know, it was nothing special to them that they were doing. They were ignorant. He recognized the ignorance, and he didn't want any special kind of judgment falling on them because they were not the ones who were ultimately responsible Even though they were the ones that were carrying out the orders. So, when you see in context what this is about, this is not a prayer to
3: forgive all the willfully wicked people. And wouldn't that really be contrary to the nature of God? You know, that Christ is the Christ the UN wants you to believe in. Everybody's okay. We all worship the same God. Let's just get along. Not everybody is going to be forgiven. Not because they can't be. Because they choose not to be.
2: And they will take the consequences. You know, when we say it is finished, that applies to a lot of things, and one of the things that applies to is wickedness. There is no way
3: to blot out and finish wickedness in the world without destroying the wicked. Is there? The only way you could do that is if you could remove from people their free will. If you do that, are they
2: people anymore? Everybody gets to choose. And people will ultimately be responsible for their choice.
3: But it's not about you
2: keeping a bunch of rules. It's about accepting what he did for you and then expressing that
3: in your life, in the choices you make. And your relationship with him. Here's some things he endured. The people stood watching. That statement kind of grabs me.
2: Isn't that what they do a lot? The people stand watching. There's an accident. There's a bunch of dead people in the middle of the intersection. What do people do? They stand
3: watching. Some old lady gets beat up in the city, mugged. What do the people do? They stand watching. Is this not one of the greatest problems that we have? People not engaged in righteousness, not objecting to evil. I just find this trait of just watching, being condemned here in these verses. The rulers with them also scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. The soldiers mocked him. They put up the sign, this is the king of the Jews. To mock him.
2: Isaiah 56 I gave my back to the strikers and my cheeks to those who plucked off the hair. I didn't hide my face from shame and spitting. They did all of
3: that and more to him.
2: One of the things that I like about the two criminals is simply this. Recognition
3: that he did nothing wrong.
2: He was innocent. He did nothing wrong. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of
3: us all. Well, this
2: is a very interesting verse. Luke 23, 42 through 43, the criminal who said to Yeshua, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Yeshua said to him, assuredly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. People often quote this verse saying, well, you see that that criminal was promised by Yeshua that he was going to go directly to heaven that day with Yeshua. There are some logical problems with that
3: idea. First of all, Yeshua rose the third day, not
2: that day. So how could he be with him in paradise that day? And even once Yeshua was raised, he still didn't ascend to heaven.
3: He didn't ascend to heaven till after 40 days. That's in Acts, the first chapter not that day.
2: So how likely is it that Yeshua was promising him he was going to be in heaven with him that day when Yeshua himself knew he wouldn't be in heaven that day? Whoops, I missed the appointment. Well, there's more than one way to look at this and understand this, but if you realize there is no punctuation in Greek, he just as easily could have said this. He said to him, truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. And I believe that's how the verse should be read, in view of the other verses. Now you won't ever find it translated that way in most Bibles because people have sort of an emotional stake in the whole thing. It's kind of a legend about all of this and what it means but obviously it doesn't mean what people think it means and that criminal did not go to heaven that day. As a matter of fact, what did he ask for? He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He didn't say, remember me today. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He was recognizing Yeshua as the Messiah and from the prophets, the time when there would be the thousand year reign, the Messianic kingdom. He was like every other Jewish person, Jewish believer, looking forward to the resurrection when Messiah would come and take up the Messianic kingdom. That's what he was actually asking for. So there's nothing even here about. Heaven or him going to heaven. Just a little side point I thought I would bring up.
3: Well, here's some things I thought we might want to look into. The cosmic signs that occurred at his
2: death. And as it goes on here, it says, It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Yeshua, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Matthew 27 gives this account, essentially the same, a little bit more information. Yeshua cried again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The earth quaked, and the rocks were split. And then in the book of Acts, Peter is talking about the signs that had occurred that they had seen, and he quoted Joel, repeated these words, The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of Adonai comes. While we heard here about the darkness, we're hearing about the moon turning into blood from Peter. So here we have these signs that it's talking about, cosmic signs. The sun growing dark from the 6th hour until the ninth hour. That's from about noon to 3 in the afternoon. The next point is the earthquake and the rocks were split. In other words, there was an earthquake at the time of Yeshua's death. The veil of the temple was torn in two. Now, this might not sound like that big a thing. You know, you think about a curtain being torn into. But the veil of the temple, according to Josephus and other writers, was 30 feet wide and 60 feet high and was as thick as a man's hand. So that's, that's how thick it was. And it took 300 priests to open it, according to those records. It was so huge and heavy. So, obviously, it's not going to be a little accident where it happened to rip. We're talking about a really huge thing happening. So, is there extra-biblical evidence that these events actually happened? First, we'll look at the sun growing dark from the sixth hour to the ninth hour,
3: from noon to three.
2: Actually, there are a number of ancient historians that verify that this actually happened. Some of them are Africanus, Thallus, and Phlegon. They all confirm this. We have a quote here from Africanus and he is also telling about some of these others and he says on the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness and the rocks were rent by an earthquake and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down this darkness phallus in the third book of his history calls as appears to me without reason an eclipse of the sun so Africanus is disagreeing with the historian Thallus that probably the darkness wasn't caused by an eclipse, whereas Thallus thought it was caused by an eclipse. So the scriptures don't say it was an eclipse. It just says it was a darkness. So that's all we know. And Phlegon records that in the time of Tiberius Caesar, at full moon, there was a full eclipse of the sun from the sixth hour to the ninth. They may have assumed something to be an eclipse of the sun because of the darkness. The reason why some people doubt that it was an eclipse is that it lasted so long. It lasted for three hours. An eclipse normally is over in a matter of minutes, an eclipse of the sun. But whatever caused it, it was an amazing darkness, and it was noted by various historians. Here's a quote from Phlegon, and he wrote in the middle of the second century, in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad. That's how they kept track of time back then, by the Olympiads. But we know how these correspond to our modern dates, and this would be A.D. 33 that this happened there was the greatest eclipse of the sun, and that it became night in the sixth hour of the day. So it's even agreeing with the biblical record as to when it happened. At noon. So that the stars even appeared in the heavens. And he also brings out that there was a great earthquake in Bithynia, and many things were overturned in Nicaea all places
3: in that part of the world.
2: And I think this is remarkable. You know, all we really need is, we've got four Gospels, and they tell us what happened, and if that's all you had, we'd have the truth. But I think it's so interesting that we have historians that also verify these things, so that people who are not believers in the Scriptures are faced with the fact that these are real events. Well, of course, it mentioned the earthquake and the rocks that were split. What about that? Was there an earthquake in 33, the same time as the darkness? Well, we read one account that says there was from that ancient time, but we also have modern methods of testing this, by geology. Through geology, you can actually look at layers of sediment and determine certain things about what may have happened. The Geological Society of America actually had a presentation on this, and it was entitled, Jerusalem Earthquake of 33 AD, Evidence." within laminated mud of the Dead Sea, Israel. So, actual evidence in the mud of the Dead Sea, a layer that is such as what happens when there's an earthquake, and I'm not a geologist, but what I understand happens is when there's an earthquake, the shaking causes certain sediments and so forth to mix. And become more homogenized because of the shaking. And so they can recognize that there was an earthquake there. Now, there weren't a lot of earthquakes. There had been a major earthquake in 31 BC. So that's 66 years earlier there was an earthquake. And then in 33 AD, there's an earthquake. And then there's not one again. For a long time. And those who studied this say that the evidence suggests a 5.5 earthquake, which can have very major effects, especially in ancient stone buildings, because they didn't build them like we do now. And it's verified
3: in physical evidence in the
2: layers of the Dead Sea. This is from. National Centers for Environmental Information, or NOAA, United States Agency. And you can go to their website and do this search for earthquakes in Israel, and you will see that in the year 33, there was one earthquake in the area, in the Middle East, and it was
3: in Israel in the year 33.
2: So, we have, I think, pretty solid scientific evidence that this quake actually happened. We have the ancient record of the historians, and we have the modern record, as well as, of course, the scriptural record. We have the veil of the temple torn in two, and, of course, I've explained to you why that is such a big thing because that curtain was a big thing. Some of you might have enjoyed reading some of the writings of Alfred Edersheim, And he was a Jewish believer in Yeshua. And he wrote a lot about history and things about the time of Yeshua, whom, of course he called Jesus. He had his book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. You can get that on a number of Bibles you can download.
3: It actually has this, you can read it.
2: And he mentions the temple veil. And then he says that some great catastrophe betokening the impending destruction of the temple had occurred in the sanctuary about this very time is confirmed by not less than four mutually independent testimonies, those of Tacitus, Josephus, of the Talmud, and of earliest Christian tradition. So, when you read this in the Gospels, some people who aren't believers say, oh, well, that's just for dramatic effect. That didn't really happen. Well, it did really happen. It's as well attested to by historians Has many things that we accept today. Things like the Boston Tea Party, for example, or Washington crossing the Delaware, those kinds of things. We accept the word of historians about things, and we have historians that reported on this taking place. Here's a Roman historian, Tacitus. He was a highly respected Roman historian, and he lived essentially in the generation that followed Yeshua. He was born around the year 56. And he says this, Contending hosts were seen meeting in the skies, arms flashed, and suddenly the temple was illumined with fire from the clouds. Of a sudden, the doors of the shrine opened, and a superhuman voice cried, The gods are departing. At the same moment, the mighty stir of their going was heard. Now, realize this is reported by a Roman. So I find this interesting, that the report is the kind of thing a Roman would think when this happened, right? The gods had left the place, because they worshiped gods, not the one god. And the very fact that is told in the manner that a Roman would report this event is evidence that it's a true record of an event that happened there at the temple. And it goes on and says about what happened with the people there. It says the majority firmly believe that their ancient priestly writings contained the prophecy that this was the very time when men starting from Judea should possess the world. So basically, it's talking about the coming of the Messiah. Some people thought what had happened, what they had seen that happened with the tearing of this curtain and the rest of these events meant that it was time for the Messiah. And they weren't wrong.
3: A blood moon. You know,
2: today we have astronomical programs, so you can look this stuff right up on your computer. And there
3: was indeed a partial lunar eclipse, April 3rd, 33 AD.
2: Now, some people find fault with this because. They say it was partial and not full. And if it was red, it qualifies with
3: me. But that's what some people think. And
2: whatever the case, it was red. And one person says it is far more plausible that unusual atmospheric conditions at that time were responsible for the red color. I'm not sure what happened. You know, maybe the software is not exactly perfect. Maybe the atmospheric conditions caused it to appear more prominent than otherwise it would be because, after all, a lot of weird things happened that day, right, with the black sky and the earthquake and all of that. So, whatever made it red, it was red. And I think the fact that there was actually an eclipse, a lunar eclipse that day, is remarkable. And I can't imagine it not being involved. Just saying. And here's something else that I found. Now, this isn't mentioned in the verses in the Gospels. But as I mentioned, you can use the software to explore things that were happening in the heavens at different times and somebody did that. Now I'll have to tell you I didn't double check this but it it would be a good project for someone. I think it's probably true. What they found is a planetary alignment that occurred in our solar system April 3rd 33 AD and yet is the shape of a man on the cross. And you have, interestingly, what would be his right leg standing on the earth. And to me, this is really interesting because it it emphasizes to me that what happened with the death of the Son of God was a cosmic event. It wasn't just significant here. This is significant throughout the universe. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't be surprised if things like this on such a large a scale happened in the universe that day that we wouldn't even be able to detect them. I think if anything gets much bigger than, than this, the alignment in our solar system, we probably wouldn't even be able to see it or detect it. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. But it's quite amazing that this did happen that day. And where the head would be on this alignment is the planet Saturn with its rings around it. So even the crown of thorns is indicated in this planetary alignment.
3: This is the biggest thing that ever happened. Now, soon we'll be talking about the resurrection. And the resurrection is amazingly significant and important. But really, the willing death of Yeshua on the cross is really much bigger than the resurrection. It guaranteed
2: that the resurrection would have to happen. That's how big it is. It guaranteed everything. It guaranteed everything. It guaranteed that there would be an end
3: to sin. It guaranteed that there would be an end to wickedness. It guaranteed that death would be totally done away with. It guaranteed that there would be a time with no more tears, no more sorrow. It guaranteed the resurrection. When Yeshua said on that cross, it is finished, it was finished. And now, you know what we're doing? We're just walking out our role. And if we don't do it, somebody else will. But it's going to happen. All the things that are guaranteed by the death of Yeshua on the cross are going to happen.
2: It is the biggest thing that ever happened, and in some ways, the biggest thing that ever will happen in our created
3: universe. Nothing has more impact. On our lives than this. The refusal to believe is the worst decision anybody can make. But the decision to believe totally changes everything. It is such an amazing thing. What is the response that we can make to this?
2: Well, I'll tell you now, there there is nothing that you can do that is sufficient to respond to this. But here's what you can do. Here's what Paul did. He said, I've been crucified with Messiah, and it is no longer I that live, but Messiah living in me. That life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of Elohim, who loved me
3: and gave himself up for me. One day, if it's never happened to you before, It will grab you that his death is your death. The old you is finished. And you are a new creation. And the old man is crucified on the cross with him. Love the greatest expression of love that could ever be offered has been offered for us. And all we can do is appreciate it and prove that we appreciate it by the choices that we make and by living not by our own life, but by His life. And it's finished.
0: You have been listening to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. Some of the scripture verses referenced in today's program are Luke chapter 23 verse 26 through verse 56, Luke chapter 3 verse 8 through verse 9, Revelation chapter 6 verse 12 through verse 17, Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 6, Luke, chapter 24, verse 7, Acts, chapter 1, Matthew, chapter 27, verse 50 through verse 51, Acts, chapter 2, verse 20, Joel, chapter 2, verse 31, and Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20. Further teachings and study materials on The Book of Revelation from a Hebraic Perspective The Significance of the Life, Death, and Resurrection of Yeshua Messiah The Prophecies that Messiah Fulfilled Repentance The Remnant of Israel The Remnant Exodus End Times Prophecy And Walking in the Holy Spirit Following Messiah Along with many other related topics can be found at our membership site, Zion Tabernacle. Sign up is free. Just go to zion.net. That's T-S-I-Y-O-N dot N-E-T. New programs on the Gospels will be airing every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio. Tune in next Shabbat to learn more from Hebraic insights in the Gospels. Shabbat Shalom! So The Christian church system has claimed that Israel is cast off and done away with. However, Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 35 through verse 37 says, Thus says Yahweh, who gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If these ordinances depart from before me, says Yahweh, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says Yahweh, If heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, then will I also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says Yahweh. The sun is still here. The sea is still still roars, and the stars still shine. Learn how Yahweh's nation Israel is literally written in the stars as a permanent testimony of our God's commitment to His covenant with Israel. Visit our community site Zion Tabernacle and sign up as a free member to view Eliyahu Ben David's seminar entitled One Nation Written in the Stars. Now available free of charge as part of Zion Fast Track, our introductory video course. Zion Fast Track will give you the big picture of what God is doing with His remnant nation in this very generation. To sign up and learn more about what other free resources you'll get as a Zion Tabernacle member, go to Zion.org and click Join Us. That's T-S-I-Y-O-N. Dot ORG. Then click join us.
1: No more. Yeshua has come to redeem us. We will return to your and